please turn with me in God's holy words to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to continue on from this morning, looking this evening at verses 7 down to verse 11 of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, reading from verse 7 down to verse 11. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that you may approve things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God Amen May the Lord bless his word to us. And our title for this message, looking at that text of God's holy word, is Christian Motivation. Christian Motivation. You've probably heard this word a lot in the world. Motivation. And when we think of the word motivation, we may think of people in our day who may lack motivation. And we may think of perhaps younger people, or not necessarily younger people, but all sorts of people in different positions in the world, and they seem to have no purpose. They're not sure why they're doing things, and it can be a very sad place to be. Motivation, why we do what we do. What is motivation? Well, it can be described this way, an enthusiasm, a drive, a determination, a motivation, a reason why we do things. Now, for a lot of human history, perhaps we would never have thought of these things. There was times of famine, times of war, Times of great difficulty, shortage. And you don't have time to think about why we do certain things. Food, survival, hunger, necessity. You have no choice but to survive. But today, why do we work hard? We must think about these things. What attracts us to do the right thing and to shun and to say no to that which is evil. It's not just enough, is it, to know what is right and wrong. Often we know what is right and wrong, yet we're more attracted towards that which is wrong. 
my wife and I would sometimes watch a program, and it's, it's a program about a person with an idea for a business who come and pitch it to the people in front of them. A number of investors is in front of them, and, and they would give their idea, and if the people with all this money think, think it's a good idea, they invest their money in it. They ask for 10% of the business or whatever. Now, if you hear the stories of these people, you wonder, why do they bother doing it? They have more money than they could ever spend in an entire lifetime. These people are multi-billionaires. And then you hear why they do what they do. It's very clear that money is their idol. They want more of it. But they also have a motivation that they don't want to go back to where they were at one point. They don't want to go back. They have a fear of going back to where they used to be. Poor. You'll actually find that a lot of these people started off very poor and at the bottom and worked all their way up. That drives them a fear of failure, ever going back to where they used to be. They have a desire and a hunger for richness. Now, it's like the right riches they're seeking after. And it's not the right type of poverty that they fear. But the Christian must seek eternal riches. And notice how I say riches. We're not just doing the things that are good. And that we don't want to do and we will grit our teeth and we'll do it anyway. We must see that these are eternal riches given to us in the word of God. These are good things that we should desire. And the poverty, the sin, the desolation. Well, this is something we should run away from and be absolutely terrified of. And the riches, of course, are found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. In this letter, and we read chapter 1 this morning's, during this morning's service of worship, Paul wishes for the believers in Philippi to be like Christ. But he's not just saying, Paul, you'll notice here, he's not just saying, come on, stop doing that and do this. I don't know if you've ever gone through a difficult time and somebody's ever said that to you and it's probably not helped you very much, has it? You know what you've got to do, you've got to stop doing this and then you've got to start doing this. And it sounds so easy. And you're like, I, I know, but you're still struggling. Paul is speaking to them from a heart of someone who really cares. He's really trying to motivate them in a Christian way to seek the beauties of the riches of Christ. The first point we're going to look at here in these verses from verse 17 down to verse 11 is number one, affection. Affection. Verses 7 and 8, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, writes, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And there's two very important phrases here in verses 7 and in verse 8. Because I have you in my heart. 
and also how great I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Affection. Affection. And when you see great affection, Paul is showing and demonstrating in how he writes and how he interacts with the believers in Jesus Christ. And this morning we saw he is thankful for those in Christ, those saved by the gospel. He's thankful for the church. He's thankful for those who've been changed, who are loving toward one another by this fellowship. And he's confident that Jesus will complete this work. But we're not yet at that final point, are we? We have not yet reached that point of sinless perfection. We've not yet reached the day of Jesus Christ, spoken about by Paul to the Philippians. We're still here on this earth, and we're still surrounded by sin, both in our world, in our in a workplace, and in our own hearts. We still wrestle with these things. We have a journey to go. We have work to do. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's every single step toward our heavenly Jerusalem is a difficult, trying task. It's why you see the, the children of Israel, and it often refers back to it, doesn't it? Forty years in the wilderness is not easy. This life in this world before Canaan is not easy. We have work to do. Now, the work does not depend on us. But we still have work to do. I remember as a dear Christian lady, I would visit her. And she struggled with the idea that she was still here, but her dear husband, her late husband, was with the Lord. Why am I here? And she would really struggle with that. And the more she would talk to me about what she would do on our daily basis, I realized she had work to do. She was showing affection and love for those people around her. She was housebound. She could barely walk. But she was blessing those around her with the gospel and also with Christian love. And she couldn't see this. And I tried to remind her of this. But she was witnessing. She had a work to do. So, friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're still here, you have a work. You have a work to do. Now, Paul, in getting across these points that he's saying, he's not just saying, do this, do that, because I think we would all, we would like lists, wouldn't we? Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then I can go back to not thinking about it. We want the lists. But Paul, when he's speaking to them, I have you in my heart. He's speaking to them very affectionately. He wants them to grow but he's showing them in what his words and his choice of everything, he loves them. He's not just telling them these things, just, well, I have to do this, this is my job, here I am. He loves them. He cares about them. And he speaks in a way that I think would make many of us embarrassed today. Oh, I couldn't talk like that. I couldn't show such level of affection. I think we would think in our modern world, Paul speaks like that. 
I have you in my heart. For God is my record. Only God knows how greatly I long after you all in the bowels. You see the depths, literally the intestines of Jesus Christ. Now this means tender mercies. Paul is telling them of his love. I think we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle to tell those people in our lives that we love them. It's important. It's important to tell people you love. When you're trying to tell them difficult things, when you're trying to strengthen them and encourage them in in what is right and wrong and all these things, we ought to show and say how much we love them. Paul is not boasting in his love, but he says it as he speaks to them because what he's really trying to get across, what I am saying to you is from a place of love. Here's here's how much I care about you. And you know yourself that when you're in trouble, who are you going to seek help from? That person who you know cares about you. And it's important to go to the person because you know that what that person is telling you is from a place of they want good for you. They're seeking your good. No, you should go to somebody who's wise as well. But I remember in school, some of the teachers who would leave the biggest impact on me. And I still remember them decades later. They weren't necessarily the most gifted, smartest people in the room, but you knew that they cared about you as an individual person. They weren't just going in to do their job. They cared about you as a person. When they see you doing well, they get excited. They're the kind of people that that leave a lasting impact. And when they talk to you, you listen. That's the same with our children. It's not just enough that we dish out the truth. We've got to show our children we love them so much. And there's different ways. We all have different temperaments. But show people that you care. You see, all the clever arguments, the greatest arguments in the world, are not going to be enough. See, Paul didn't speak as a cold, disinterested Here's the truth. Take it or leave it. He didn't talk like that. He said, I have you in my heart. And he's not speaking from a diff- he's not speaking from an easy point of view. He's not saying, come on, lads. I'm, I'm in prison. You have it a lot easier than I have it. No, he didn't speak like that. And it affects us. When we love people, it affects us. Look at Jesus for an example. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And verses 11 to 14. John chapter 11. And verses 11 to 14. Says this. These things said he, and after... That he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. And down in verse 14, Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
And then if you turn on to verse 33, 33 of the same chapter, to 36, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And look at verse 36. Then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. We may look at that and, be, and find that strange. Well, we know that Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. What's the problem? Jesus was moved to tears. Death is still an enemy. And he cared. Jesus was not cold and indifferent. Neither was Paul writing to these believers in Philippi. He speaks of bowels of mercy. This deep-seated, he's affected by them. He loves them. He has this deep down affection for them. That is the greatest motivation we need to care for others. It's the greatest motivation wherever we're going to give to other people if we're actually going to witness. Sometimes people won't necessarily hear the information we give them, especially if we don't seem to care for them. And this is not an excuse to, to hide the truth and to do all the other things that people want us to do to, to show that we love. We don't, we're not to conceal the truth. But when in showing the truth, show them how much you care. Like that can be our children. That can be friends and family. That can be witnessing to people. And there can be times that it affects us so much that we do weep. Paul has demonstrated he cares for them. It has cost him his freedom. In going around with the gospel, it has cost Paul his freedom. He's in bonds. It says it in verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all place and in all other places. He's in prison. But he doesn't want to stop. Oh, why am I doing this? He doesn't start grumbling. He doesn't. He has a deep affection and love. And that is what is going to get you to the next point. Not the ease of going from A to B. It's going to be how much you love God. And love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And also those outside of the church. If we don't have a love for the people outside of the church. We're not going to witness to them. Are we? It's difficult work. Evangelism is difficult work. We won't get thank yous from many people, will we? But because we love them, we keep sharing the truth with them. And that is what is going to drive us to do so. So number one, affection. Affection. Number two, addition. Addition. Verse number nine. And this I pray that your love may abound. Yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. 
abound yet more and more. This morning's message we looked at, give thanks for charity, a love that exists between believers. And we share this together as one body. And yes, we should be content with what we have in one way. We've been given so much. We've been changed. We've been rescued. But there's also another sense in which we should not be content with our sin. We should not be content to remain where we are today. Praise God we're here. But let's not be content to remain here. We want to be closer to the Lord. God has brought us this far. We don't want to be ungrateful for that. But let us continue to go on and on. And this is Paul's attitude as well. He said abound. And what does abound mean? It means exceeding rich. Overflow. And we spoke about at the beginning of this message. Those investors who invest in these things. They want more and more success and money. And they're searching after the wrong riches. But here is the abundant riches we are to to seek after. Greater riches. Overflowing riches. Verse 9 once again. For this I pray that your love may abound over more and more in knowledge and in judgment. Now, the riches of this world, they never satisfy. They never satisfy. They'll never get to the point where that's enough. Oh, that, oh that's complete. Oh, I'm satisfied now. Actually, it's like drinking the seawater. You get more and more thirsty. You want it. More and more. It never satisfies. But the more we abound in love toward God and toward each other as believers in Jesus Christ. And also to those outside of the body of Christ. The more satisfaction we're going to have in God in this world. Now we're going to have full satisfaction in the world to come will experience greater joy in this world. No matter what we're experiencing. Again, remember, Paul writes this in prison. Paul writes this in bonds. Paul writes this wondering, will I survive to live another day? The prisons of that day are not like the prisons of today. Somebody, he speaks a lot of dying. He speaks a lot of death. He wonders. And difficulties can do that to you, can't they? If you have illness, you wonder, how long more do I have in this world? In fact, friends, every time we drive our car, we should wonder, can we get home safely? How long more are we left in this world? doesn't matter how young or old we are. None of us are guaranteed another moment in this world. We're to abound more and more. Addition. Addition. We're to abound in what, is it just what the world says, love is love? It's just a feeling, whatever pleases man. That's what the world presents. They'll say love is love. Or is it to please God? And it must be what pleases God. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John and chapter 4 and verse 8. He... That loveth not, knoweth not 
God. For God is love. Also verse 16 of the same chapter. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. For we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. And the more we abound in this love, we're going to be changed in this life. More and more like the one who is love. And that is God himself. Closer and closer to him. I think even the young people that are here know that if you add one plus one, what happens? It becomes two, doesn't it? And if you add another one to that, it becomes three. If you add another one to that, it becomes four. I guess the point I'm making is this. It's different. It's changed. And that's what we should all seek. To be further along than where we once were. One doesn't sound like a lot, does it? It's one extra step, one progression, one, one point closer to God. But there's change. There's blessings in that. You may not notice a great change, but if you keep adding those ones up every single day, how much along have you moved? You may move back two steps some days, but you keep going forward, growing, growing, as Paul writes, and this I pray that your love may abound. And, and these things we need to pray for, friends. We can't just be, look, I'm going to heaven, I'm a sinner here, well, he, that, that's enough. Uh, I, I don't need to grow anymore. And we can act like that. Because if I grow anymore, if I grow in sanctification, if I see these extra commandments in the scriptures, it's going to make my life very, very difficult. My friends aren't going to like me. My work colleagues aren't going to like me. My boss isn't going to like me. I've got to tone down that religious talk. We know that these things we wrestle with in our minds. But friends, growing and being closer to the Lord, abounding in love is wonderful. Is joyful. There may be afflictions along the way. I do not deny that for a second. But to be closer to the Lord. Is its own reward. In this world. Our third point is this. Attention. Attention. So we've looked at number one affection. Number two addition. Number three attention. And in all these things. With the greatest temptation we can have is sometimes when we focus in on ourselves what can happen we think well I don't know if I'm progressing and I, I've had a bad day our focus can't really be on ourselves yes we examine ourselves yes we wish to grow and be more like Christ but our focus must be upon Jesus our focus must be upon Jesus. Verse number 10. 
that ye may approve things that are excellent. And, and Paul prays these things because we need the power of God in these things. That ye may approve things that are excellent. That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Excellent. These works are excellent. By what standard? By our own standard? By the standard of the world? By what is impressive to everybody else? No. By what is pleasing before God. Why does Paul say in the previous verse to grow in love? Well, to grow in what? In knowledge and in judgment. That we would have greater wisdom. To know Christ and to know better how we can that we may approve or that is test or try things that are excellent. Our focus is to be on the return of Jesus Christ. What is going to be excellent at the return of Jesus Christ? The day of the Lord. Till the day of Christ as it says here in verse number 10. What will be pleasing? What will be excellent? What will stand the test of time. What will stand the test of eternity in fact? Those which are good. Those which are wonderful. Those which are in Jesus Christ. It's going to be the righteousness of Christ isn't it? And in the new heavens. And in the new earth. What will last? The work of Jesus Christ. We will see and behold in a day of justice when his enemies are fully crushed under his feet and in a day when righteousness is exalted and in a day when justice is vindicated in a day when the difference between one group and another group will be clearly distinguished. Righteousness exalted. His goodness exalted. His son exalted. The attention and the focus and the glory and the honor will be to Jesus Christ. And so must it be today. So must it be today. He must be our great reward. He must be our great motivation. He must be what gets us out of bed in the morning. He must be what draws us to church. He must be what draws us away from our sin when we are tempted. He must be what makes us see the heinousness of sin and how horrible it is and nailed him to the cross and made the death of Jesus Christ necessary. It's not enough to say to people, you've got to stop doing this and stop doing that. There's a certain level of truth that, of course. But we won't stop doing certain things and change our attitudes unless we love Jesus more and unless we hate sin more. It'll, it'll unravel, it will fall apart, it will be an act for the world. Christ will return as judge and our motivation must be him. Our motivation must be pleasing him. And when we do fall down and we will fail and we do make mistakes, that we will learn from those mistakes and ask for the grace of the Lord that we would not return to those things. And we do have those sins. Don't we? The sins we went. How many times have I been to this place. Asking again and again. 
Well, so often, friends, we've got the wrong motivation. We're looking at ourselves and our own performance, and we're going to think that we're good enough to come before the Lord. We're not. We never are. We never have been. We never will be. But because of Jesus Christ, we're received, we're embraced, we are loved in him. You see, even after we've come to Jesus Christ, we still have moments and seasons and journeys where we really do times look to ourselves and we start to even think, well, I can clean myself up. And, and we fall flat on our faces because we can't do it. And God is showing us we can't do it. And we can never be good enough. And we're trying to beautify ourselves. We can't. Jesus and him and him alone is glorious. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross. We cling. It says in Habakkuk, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Habakkuk, chapter 1 and verse number 13. first half of this verse in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13 thou art and this is speaking of God of pure eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity of pure eyes than to behold evil and why do we f why do we hate sin why do we wish to be away from it not that we can make ourselves good enough we can't we do so because God is pleased with such things. And when we do come closer to the day of Jesus Christ, when all these things will exalt him, we will be found blameless in him. Again, the attention must never be brought away from Jesus Christ. Jude chapter 1 and verse 24. Jude in chapter 1 and verse Number 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Unto him who is able to keep you. Unto you. Unto your performance that is able to keep you from falling. No, your performance will continually let you down. It's unto him. It's unto him we look. Not just for the first moment of salvation. We look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. Every day, every morning, every evening we finish. All the time. And we look to him for continual forgiveness. For strength and sustenance. Our attention must always be upon Christ because what will happen when we don't, when our eyes are focused away on something else, something to, to, that either causes anxiety or whatever the case may be, the devil has a foothold and it's tormenting. And friends, what we have to learn in various parts of our life, when our focus is distracted away from God, we must think of what is pleasing to Christ 
And we must think of how, as Paul says, that you may be sincere and without offense. How can you be sincere and without offense in your walk? In Christ, focused upon him. We never, ever outgrow our need of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Our final point, number four, is application. Application. So as Christian motivation, we've looked at affection. It's important that we are ourselves with a tender love for others and for God, a love for God. Also, we seek addition, a growth in love. Our attention is upon Christ. And finally, number four, application. So often we can, we can talk about all these things, we can say amen to all of them, but we can so often hear them and not do anything about them. And I stand guilty of that as well. Verse 11, Paul writes, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. You see, you, oh well, my performance isn't good enough, well... And we can walk a thousand miles in error that way, and we can walk a thousand miles in an error a different way. It doesn't mean, well, it doesn't matter how we live. Paul then says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Why? Unto the glory and praise of God. They don't earn you acceptance before God, your best day, your best five seconds, your best one second on this earth would earn you an eternity in hell. Never can anything you do in any way make you acceptable before God. Anything. The nicest thing you've ever done, it's tainted by sin. The most noble deed you've ever done. But it doesn't mean, well, I'm not going to do anything. Why do we do these things? It was like, I can't be accepted. Why even try? To the praise and to the glory of God. That's why. It's all to the praise or to the glory and the praise of God. And see, all, anything we do that's to the praise of God, it's in and through Jesus Christ. We must when we hear things from the word of God, as much as we do fall short, and we do, seek to apply. Seek to have it change our actions, our lives, how we live, the choices we make, the direction we go. I was in school years ago. It's probably about 20 years ago now I studied this subject, but it was called Applied Maths. And I think you all know maths, don't you? Math is, you know, two plus two, and you do all these different things, and you may scratch your head, and, well, what do I need this for? And you've probably asked yourself that question. Do I need all this trigonometry, or, or all these different things that you do in math? But I remember doing applied maths. You'd see a ball rolling down a hill at a certain speed, at a certain angle. And you say, oh, that's how you can use it. It's applied to the real world. Christian truth, unless we apply it to the real world and real world situations, we'll also wonder, why are we learning this? 
What kind of fruit does Paul speak about? Righteousness. And put it another way, this book influences and affects and is seen to show and has an impact on how we live. It's never as much as it ought to be, but it does have an impact. James 1 and verse 22. James chapter 1. Verse number 22 says this, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. There's a great responsibility when you receive a truth that we apply it. That we say, okay, this is true. This is who God is. This is the reality of the situation. Now what do we do? How does this change how I live? How does this change how I raise my children? How does this raise how I act at work? How does this raise how I interact with my parents? How does this, all these things. And I put it in another way that we don't just store this information in our minds as if we're ready for the next quiz and we have all the answers. That it affects in a very real way. I know Christians, dear Christian families, and often some of them would say very, very little. But because they would hear certain Christian truths about how they would raise their children, all sorts of things, and they would say nothing. They wouldn't even give you advice. But you could see it impacting and how they lived. And it left a huge, huge impact. The truth is not only to enter into our heads, as the Puritans would say, also we need to enter into our hearts. We need to love the truth or not, we're not going to want to do it very much. And then it also needs to impact our hands. If we don't, we're really going to be judged for what we have heard and ignored. Christianity, the Bible, is to... Represent who we are. People may ask you at times, why do you do what you do? They may scratch their heads and not understand. You may have people in the college and wondering, why do you do this? People in your job and they just say, why, why can't you just fit in and, and follow the way of the world? Well, here's one possible answer. My love and attention is on Christ. So I must do these things because he is my master and he is my king. And you may feel, as we all do at times, that courage may flee away at those moments. You're all alone and no one else is around. The Lord will supply grace in those moments. Do you feel motivated to be here at church. There will be moments you do not feel it. Keep coming anyway. Keep sitting under the means of grace. There are times, yes, we may feel sluggish to read our Bibles. But what is the great and most supreme motivation of all? Jesus Christ. Glorious, lovely, true. And when we love him, that's the greatest motivation. To be like him. 
to have an affection, a love, this love that Paul shows, that have you in my heart. We're not standing at a distance from people. Oh, I have the right doctrine. I, I can stand over here. I'm not going to help you. No, no, no. Friends, this truth that we, we hear, it affects how we live and we are to love others, to be changed, and to, to, I would even put this, to motivate others by our Christian conduct. To be more like Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound. And friends, this I pray, that your love may abound. Pray it every day, that the love in your heart may abound. We need God's grace we need God's enabling, or we can do nothing. We can do nothing. And it's all for the glory of Christ. To him be the glory. Amen. Let us praise our heavenly King.